And the rest of us, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. We have been going through the book of Romans since the first of the year, and it has been awesome. It has been so good. You know, there's just a conviction in our heart that uh, people need the Word of God. And so we just like, you know, we're going we're gonna to study the book of Romans, probably the greatest book in your Bible, uh, the book that's probably most responsible for what we call Western civilization today would be the book of Romans, all right? And so Romans chapter 4, we're going to be starting at verse 13 here in a moment. But I want to ask you to kind of go back in memory lane for a moment. Uh, back in 2010, do you remember when the San Jose copper mine down in Chile had a cave-in and there were 69 miners <clears throat> who were trapped underground. And uh, man, the world was watching. It was incredible. It was so, it was so suspenseful because they kind of knew that those miners were alive down there, but there was no way to contact them, no way to reach them. And uh, they were 2,000 feet underground. You know, trying to put that in perspective, you can imagine a layer of rock over your head, basically from here you know, down to the corner of like, you know, Gardner in Florida. I mean, it's just incredible to think about that. And here's the thing. Nobody knew exactly where they were because the mining company had been negligent and their maps of the mine were really badly out of date. And they had enough food for two days, but they, they began to ration their food thinking there's no way they're going to find us in two days. And they were down there, listen to this now, two weeks without a word from anyone. And if they were ever going to be saved, Hope is going to have to come from above. Help is going to have to come from above. But it was silent. But it was so interesting. There was a woman named Elizabeth Segovia. And while her husband was trapped underground, she gave birth to a little girl, their, their first little girl, and she named their little girl Esperanza, which is the Spanish word for hope. Isn't that awesome? I just love that so much. Now, I want you to think about that today. You know, you might be in a similar circumstance today and you feel like just life is just caved in on you. Life is caved in on you maybe financially, emotionally, relationally, uh, whatever, spiritually, and you just kind you can't see any way out. I mean, it is so dark, it seems so hopeless. And at the moment, you aren't even sure anyone really knows where you are, just like those miners there. You don't see any way out of the situation that you're in, and it just feels hopeless for you. I would almost guarantee that in a room this size, with this many people, there's somebody here today who's really struggling with feelings of hopelessness. And God's word tells us that there was a man who lived thousands of years ago. His name was Abraham, and he was the father of our faith. Not only the father of the Christian faith, he's also the father of the, uh, the Islamic faith and also uh, the Jewish faith. Uh, just really an amazing man. But he was in a hopeless situation. He and his wife were far past the age at which they could bear children in their 70s, in their 90s. And having a family was seemingly hopeless, but God promised Abraham that he was going to have an heir, which meant he would have to have a son. And so that's where we pick up in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. The Apostle Paul is writing about, you know, uh, just the gospel, how we understand what it means to, you know, be saved by faith. And here we go, verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Please underline that in your Bible, heir of the world. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law, the Ten Commandments, are heirs, they have an inheritance, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. Where there's no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, look at this. Therefore, 
the promise. What's the promise? The promise of a kingdom to come. The promise of heaven, eternity with God. It comes by faith so that it may be grace. So maybe by grace and may be guaranteed. Underline the word guaranteed in your Bible. To all of Abraham's offspring, not only of those who are of the law, but of those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, spiritually speaking. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And then underline verse 18. Love this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Man, isn't that great? Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. We're going to break down what that means here in a moment. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham is proof that living by faith in God, it doesn't undo all of life's negative realities. Absolutely not. People who are you know, walking with the Lord, who love the Lord, they still face the same troubles as everyone else, but with one very important difference. God provides his children with hope, a hope that defies all human calculations, and all human expectations, we are the kinds of people that are being told we must expect the unexpected, believe the un- unbelievable, all right, and live against all human hope. And so that is our title today, Against All Hope. We had a great discussion in my faith Bible study class last week, and we talked about the importance of hope. There is an epidemic of hopelessness in our culture right now. And you might be aware of it. I mean, if you watch TV for 15 minutes, read the blogs, get on social media, it just seems like people are just swimming. I should say, I shouldn't say swimming, drowning in hopelessness. And it's just incredible to see the change. You might say the, you know, the, the, the national mindset here in America, it just seems like, like hopelessness is so pervasive in our culture that we're living in today. Back, back in 2021, there was a study done of 17,000 teenagers And the current state of affairs for our young people is alarming. 67%, which is two-thirds of them, say they persistently feel sad or hopeless. That's an increase of over 20 percentage points since 2011. And so I, I, I said this to my class last week, you know, parents, grandparents, the most important thing you can be doing right now is instilling in your children and your grandchildren a sense of hope, a sense of hope. Proverbs 13, 12, Solomon said this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when a longing is fulfilled, it is a tree of life. That word deferred, by the way, it comes from a very, very old primitive word that means uh, something that dries and shrivels up, like a, like a peach at the very back of the refrigerator you forgot about, okay? <laughs> something like that. And the picture here is that you're longing for something. You have a dream, you have, you have a hope, you have a desire, but you wait so long. You wait so long, and it just seems like it just dries up and shrivels up, and it makes your heart sick, Solomon says. And maybe you can relate to that today. Maybe you've had dreams in your life. You've had hopes for your life, but it appears as if those dreams are drying up and going away. And it means, Solomon means here, when it says it makes you sick, you get, you get weak, you get tired because of those things that you can't seem to find. And so here's the first thing I want to talk to you about today, the optics of hope, all right? Uh, For years, I've been saying this, that hope is the most powerful 
performance-enhancing drug available, all right? And the reason I say that is because of an experience that I had back in high school. And I was telling my class about this. So my senior year of high school uh, football team, we had a pretty good season. It wasn't great, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, we go to the last game of the season, and this is up in Colorado. We're playing the Beaver Creek High School, the Beaver Creek Ski Area. We're playing Beaver Creek High School. They were winless all season. They were a terrible football team. We were a pretty good football team. We get there. We had a heartbreaking loss the week before. It's the last game of the season. We get there. There's like six inches of snow on the field. And uh, we have to go play in that. And there's this big mud pit in the middle too. And we get in there and we start playing. They, they were bad. I'm not lying. They were really, really bad. But they were better than us that night because we threw a couple of interceptions. We fumbled the ball a few times. Halftime, they're up 14 to nothing. They're going to the locker room, man. They're hooping and hollering. They had never had a lead. Man, they are excited. I mean, we're going to our locker room, man. Our heads are down low. Our heads are hanging down. And our uh, defensive coordinator, you know, Coach Yester was his name. He had never done the halftime talk, but I saw him whispering to the head coach. He's like, I want to do the halftime talk. And he says, okay, you can go do it. So Coach Yester comes in. Man, he starts pacing up and down in front of this chalkboard they had there in the, in the locker room. He's pacing back and forth. And finally, he tucks like where he goes, he goes, he goes, you know what you guys have done? <laughs> he says, you've given them hope. <laughs> you've given them hope. And I'll never forget, he slapped that chalkboard so hard, you know? And because you've given them hope, they believe they're going to win. And if they believe they're going to win, they will because you don't believe you can. And it was a great speech, man. It really was. <laughs> and so we went out there, we beat them like they stole something. It was awesome. I mean, we... <laughs> It was really, really great. But when, when, when we gave them hope, their performance changed. It really did. They had never had a lead. They could see a win. And because they could see a win, they were a different football team, and they were playing great. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this a little bit later on in this letter. He says, in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? We hope for what we do not see. Look at verse 13 through 15 there. He says, It was not through law or human performance that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. And he uses the word heir again a little bit later in this sentence. Abraham and his offspring were given this promise. You're going to be the heirs of the world. Jesus said a lot of astonishing things, but let's be honest. That's one of the most staggering things that Jesus ever talked about he said this over and over again, that ordinary people like you and me are going to be given a glorious kingdom. He said this in Luke chapter 12, seek the kingdom of God. You'll get everything you need. Don't be afraid for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. We should let that sink in for a moment. What does that really mean? I don't know. I got to be honest with you. I, I just, I don't know. I can't absorb that. You know, it gives my father great happiness to give me his kingdom. We don't talk about this enough. That is just jaw-dropping that God gives us a kingdom, but it's an aspect of our Christian lives that gets neglected and we, we don't really talk about it enough. We talk about you know going to heaven and things like that. Jesus didn't talk in terms of just going to heaven. He talked about being given a kingdom. For example, Matthew chapter 25, he talks about the very last day, judgment day. He says, all the nations will be assembled in front of him. He will separate them one from another. And the king will say to those on his right, come here, you people who my father has blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Hmm. There's one thing that Jesus wants you and me to consistently see with the eyes of faith. And that is it gives God great pleasure to give human beings his glorious kingdom. It's amazing. And so, yeah, life gets really, really hard. It gets really, really difficult. This is why Paul says, set your eyes on things above, not on things below. And that is so, so true for us here today. We have to do this today because, yes, it does feel like things are getting worse. I've apologized to my kids over and over again. I tell them all the time, man, politics was not like this when I was your age. You know, man, America was not like this when I was your age. It was not like this when I was your age. I tell them that all the time. Fix your eyes on things above, not, not on things below. Now, if you're like me, you think about that. It gives God pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'm kind of like, well, tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know, to get that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Tell me what I have to do. Look at verse 14. If those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Worthless. What does that mean? Let's suppose King Charles came to church here one Sunday. And Charles needs to go to church. Let's be honest, okay? I watched one season of The Crown. He needs to be in church, okay? And he and Camilla, man, they're coming in. They're sitting here on the front row. And he's so moved by the music and the kids and all those other things. Everyone's so friendly. And he says, hey, can, can, you know, he says, Les, can I speak? Sure. You're King Charles. Why not? And he gets up and he says here, he stands right here behind this pulpit. And he says, I just feel like God's telling me. That's what's to give my kingdom to somebody here in this room as an inheritance. It's all yours. But I want to make sure that the person who receives my kingdom is worthy, they're a truly exceptional person. So I just need somebody who's like nobody else anywhere. So I'm going to ask you to stand right here on the stage here. I want to ask you to jump up and touch the ceiling. And if you can jump up and touch the ceiling, then I'm going to give you my entire kingdom. It's all yours. And you'd all be sitting there like you are right now going, that's a worthless promise. Nobody can do that. And so, yeah, that's really bold of you, Charles. Way to go. Think about this. A kingdom is only as glorious as the citizens within it. A country is only as good as the citizens within it. Isn't that true? Humanly speaking, it is impossible for any of us to live in this kingdom to come because in our own strength, we cannot be the kinds of people who make a kingdom like that possible. Let's say that one more time. We cannot be the kinds of people that make a kingdom like that possible. And so what does God require of the citizens of his kingdom? Jesus summed it up better than anyone. He was challenged by a scribe or a Pharisee. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So what is God telling you and I that we have to do? Just love. That's all. Love everyone all the time without fail. And if you can't do that, That means that the salvation promise promise that comes with keeping God's law is useless. And that's the point Paul is making is that no amount of human performance can get you or I the promise 
of the kingdom to come. And when Paul wrote this, Christians from a Jewish background, they were really struggling with this. They really were, because they were taught that circumcision and law-keeping, those were all symbols of the covenant, that you were made righteous with God by the things that you did, the rituals that you did, the religious performance that you had. And that was your hope of righteousness. But do me a favor, turn in your Bible back to the first book in your Bible, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Now, if you're coming from a Jewish background, you're reading Paul's letter here to the Romans. This is blowing your mind. It really is. All right. You can't believe somebody would say these things, but look at chapter 15, verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram, Abraham, in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? He's my number one servant. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. Indeed, if you can, count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse six. I hope you have it underlined in your Bible. Uh, Underline it today if you don't. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Think about this. Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. From the Jewish point of view, Abraham was a Gentile. This is like a 9.8 earthquake in Judaism and really all human religion. It shattered the foundations because all human religion is built upon the foundation of human performance whether it's the Ten Commandments, the Five Pillars of Islam, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, all built on human performance. Abraham did not have a code of ethics to follow or no rituals to, uh, to observe. Only faith, this relationship, this love relationship with God. Abraham did not have the law of Moses, and he would not be circumcised for another 14 years after this. And he was made righteous 430 years before the law was given to Moses. And he was told, you're an offspring. There's going to be an incredible miracle. You're 90 years old. Your wife is 75. You're going to be given offspring, descendants that are too numerous to count like the stars in the sky. Why? Not because of anything that he did. It was his faith. It was his faith. Faith and faith alone gave Abraham the right to inherit the world, to be an heir of the world, the kingdom to come. That is the optics of hope, to be able to see what cannot be seen with the eyes of faith, to believe the unbelievable, to expect the unexpected with the eyes of faith. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 says, Paul said, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. So yes, we have to be able to see those things. And then the other thing I want to talk about today is the objective of hope, the objective. I saw a post on Reddit 
this week, I got to be honest, it was really hard for me to read because the post had a title on it. It says, does anyone else feel dead inside? And this person wrote this. It could just stem from constant disappointments in life, but I genuinely don't feel anything anymore. I've gotten past feeling sad or depressed or gloomy. I simply have no drive to change anything. I don't have any expectations of anything. I don't care anymore. I care so little that I don't even care to change. And yet I realize that ideally I shouldn't be happy with how I currently am. Of course, this could all be stemming from a depression so great that I can't even tell it exists. I just feel nothing and I don't know why. And there's a comment in the thread below. Yeah, I've been pretty emotionally dead for a while now. I'm sure it is a defense mechanism because my brain is tired of being in constant pain. I'm not too worried about it. I'd rather be emotionally numb than in constant pain all the time. (sighs) You know, you look around the youth culture today, you see so many people saying things like, I feel dead inside. I feel empty. I feel numb. I feel nothing. These are all expressions that we hear so often today. Now, I got to say, it is possible for people who really love the Lord to get very depressed and really have a battle with feelings of hopelessness. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of people who say they feel dead inside, most of those people, not all, but most of those people are saying, yeah, you really are. The Word of God says that you are. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Paul said, at one time you were dead because of your sins and you followed the sinful ways of the world and obeyed the leader of the power of darkness. And at one time, all of us gave into what our bodies and minds wanted. We were sinful from birth like all other people and we would suffer from the wrath of God. I remember one of my most memorable times as a youth pastor sitting around one day studying this passage with some students. And I said, guys, the real point of the Christian life is not whether you're good or bad. It's whether you're dead or alive. And I mean, the lights went on for some of those kids. It was so fun. Then we had this great discussion talking about it. And Ephesians 2 goes on a little bit later and says this, in those days, when you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, you lived in this world without God and without hope. Without hope. You see, as a man or a woman, you're a complex creation made of earth, yet God has put something of eternity in your heart. We all possess a sense of timeless destiny. This kingdom to come, we yearn for it. We long for it. We just something in us, even if you don't know Christ as your savior, you just know that you are meant for more and you long for more. But life will be a tragic journey through emptiness if that, sad, if that desire, that desire for eternity is not satisfied and hopelessness can grow in your soul like a malignancy. Ecclesiastes chapter three, Solomon said, I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. It's a, it's a heavy, heavy weight. And he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time, but he set eternity in the human heart so that no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You see, when things get bad enough, you try being good enough, you try being bad, you try being good, you try being indifferent, it's all in vain. Perhaps you might turn in desperation like the prodigal son to the God who raises the dead raises the dead. Look at verse 16. Paul says, the, the promise comes by faith, so there may be grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. And look at verse 17. 
He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Now notice the first thing he says, the promise comes by faith. On that clear starry night, just imagine Abraham out there looking up in the sky, receiving that promise, hearing the voice of God, and it was founded on his faith. The promise came by his faith, not his moral righteousness or his moral religious performance. And Paul says, so it may be by grace, and so it'll be guaranteed. I don't know if anybody here has ever, you know, like been set to receive an inheritance because somebody in your family wrote a will and they, you have a legal contract and you think, man, I'm going to get an inheritance because there's a contract. And then someone in the family comes up and they contest the contract and the contract gets ripped up. And the next thing you know, you don't get the inheritance. All right. You thought it was guaranteed, but it wasn't. But in Christ, your inheritance, Paul says, it is guaranteed because it's not a, dependent on anything that you or I do. It depends completely on what God has done. You see, religion spells inheritance D-O. Christians spell inheritance D-O-N-E. It's done by grace. First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that is into an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. And he says, it is reserved in heaven for you. That word reserved, by the way, is a word from the military. It means it's being guarded for you. It's being shielded. It's being protected by the power of God. And when grace comes into your life, it guarantees the promise. It guarantees the inheritance. And you and I had to earn good standing before God. We could never do it. We would fail. We would blow everything. We would blow it. We really would. But if the inheritance comes by grace, it doesn't depend upon us at all. It depends on God. And if it depends upon God and God alone, then it is guaranteed because he will never fail. Hebrews 10, let us hold tightly to the hope that we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And so then he goes on to say, he's the father of us all, the father of many nations. Abraham is our spiritual father because he put his faith in God and he was saved by his faith. And he was in the past what we are in the present. Those who are made righteous or or innocent in God's sight because of their faith. And I love what Paul does here. He can't help himself. He just, he wants to praise God. When he says God's name, he wants to praise God. And so he says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Look at that phrase, things that are not. Look at that for a moment. He's borrowing a concept from Greek philosophy and Something that is not is something that is void, a zero, a cipher. And more specifically, he's referring to Abraham's wife, Sarah. She couldn't have children. And for 90 years of her life, there was an emptiness in her life, physically and also emotionally, because she was childless. There was a void in her body. There's also a void in her heart because she couldn't have children. She had lost hope of ever having a family of ever having children. For everyone who feels dead or empty inside, what's missing? God. God is what is missing. The void that you feel, the emptiness, is God, a God-shaped void in your life. 
Blaise Pascal put it this way back in the 1600s. He said this, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty trace. And this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in things that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite, immutable object. In other words, by God himself. You see, the innate longing of your heart and my heart is something outside of itself, something transcendent, something otherworldly. You know, a square peg cannot fill a round hole, and nothing can fill a God-shaped void in your life and mine except God. But tragically, the more and more people spend more and more of their lives looking for that one thing other than God that can fill the void that only God can fill. It might be career, it might be family, it might be sports, destination travel, risk-taking, or all of the above trying to fill that void, they remain unfulfilled and the sense of emptiness won't go away. And they don't know why. I want you to look at a graph. This just came out last week, a new Wall Street Journal poll. Uh, in 2023, only 12% of Americans are very happy. And notice that the share of very happy people has plunged 20 points. When you look at this graph, you see what happens. It's so interesting. Back in 2019, 32%, very happy. 2023, what happened? You notice in the middle, the people that are, you know, pretty happy, you know, meh. <laughs> you know, that kind of, eh. Are you happy? Yeah. All right. That stayed about the same. So what happened? Well, a bunch of people who said they were very happy are now just, eh. And a bunch of people who were, yeah, are now like, ugh. Not happy at all. Not happy at all. It's really interesting to see. You ask why? Think about this. They also found out that two-thirds of happy Americans say they don't put a high value on money. They're satisfied with their personal finances. The Bible calls that contentment. They're content. Two-thirds of happy Americans treasure their marriage. Only 43% of Americans as a whole say that their marriage is important to them. 67% of happy Americans say their marriage is very important to them. That's a 24-point difference. Two-thirds of happy Americans say they love God. According to Pew Research that was done last year, 30% of the U.S. population are nuns. Like, what? There aren't that many nuns. No, wait. What they mean is, when they call them and ask, what's your religious affiliation? They say, none. They're the nuns. We have more nuns in America than we've ever had before. People say, I have no religious affiliation. None. Less than half of Americans today say that their religious faith is important to them. And we wonder why so many more Americans are 34% not happy. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, you can go out and you can pursue lots of things in life, and you will find a measure of happiness. It's been well said. You've never seen anybody frowning on a jet ski, all right? That's true, all right? Jet skis will make you happy, you know, those kinds of things. But these little puffs of pleasure that we run after, they don't last. God made humanity for his eternal kingdom. 
to be the heirs of the world. And only God can fulfill our desire for eternity, for eternal things, for transcendent otherworldly things. In John chapter 7, Jesus, on the last day of the great feast, stood out, stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And by this he spoke of the Spirit. Look at that word there, innermost being, for a moment. The word in the Greek is often translated heart, but it really means something more like a cavity or a hollow place or an empty place. And that what he's saying is that if you'll come to me, that empty place in your heart, it can be filled. It will be filled. And so when people say, I feel dead inside, I feel empty, absolutely, Jesus would agree. The objective of hope, what is the objective? To restore to man what was lost, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a growing, thriving, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what can fill the void that we all have, that we're all born with in our deepest heart. Isaiah chapter 40 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak, and those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And the third thing is this. There are obstacles to hope. We're just not going to talk about those today. (laughs) All right? You got to come back next week. All right? Because this is such a great passage. I love this passage. So we're going to dive into that next week. Jesus' disciples once asked him, can you increase our faith? That's what we want to do next week. Increase our faith. That's going to be our objective next week. So I want to conclude with this today. And so the trapped miners in Chile, they went for weeks without any contact from above. Most of the miners were Catholic. And so the men set up a little chapel down in the mine. I mean, it's dark. They have no food, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they set up a little chapel. There's a man named uh, Mario Gomez. He was the oldest of the, of the crew. And he just kind of spiritually counseled all of his companions. And, and they led daily prayers. And they had no way of knowing 2,000 feet above them. It was impenetrable, this barrier between them and the surface world. They had no way of knowing that people from all over the world were working like mad to rescue them. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers was there. The, uh, the greatest mining engineers from all over the world volunteered their time. NASA was even there. And they were all up above them, working furiously to rescue them, to save them, and to bring them home. But they had no way of knowing that. But they just continued to pray. They continued to counsel each other, encourage each other in their faith. After two weeks, they finally pinpointed their location. They drilled a hole. And they began to send food and water and medicine to the miners, not just to help them, but also to give them hope. And then that too provided hope to the miners that someone was up above them and someone does love them. All right. And that's, that, that's something you and I need to see that Jesus came down to us. He came down into the dark where we are. And that little, that little, that little effort, that little gesture gives us hope that there is someone up above us 
who is working furiously to rescue us and take us home. Absolutely. After 69 days, every miner was successfully brought to the surface and every one of them survived. And that little girl named Esperanza, her name means hope, got to see her daddy for the very first time. One miner said, we always knew that we'd be rescued. We never lost faith. And another one says, there were not, <clears throat> there were not 69 people down in that pit. There were 70. I'm sorry, there were not 33, pardon me. There were not 33 people down in that pit. There were 34. God was with us the entire time. Isn't that great? I want you to see this before we go today. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him and on those, and on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment this morning, if we could. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Kind of move your heart Godward for a moment. I want to ask you to think about this. No matter how dark your situation might be, no matter how dark your situation is, you want to keep the faith because the faith is what's going to keep you. Keep the faith because ultimately your faith will keep you. And if you're here today and you say, unless I, I, I just, I, there's, there's an emptiness. There, there's, there's, a, there's a longing in my heart that just won't seem to go away. I just need to ask you this question. Have you ever bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and I need you, Jesus. And I need you to save my soul. I need you to raise my soul from the dead. It's just a matter of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need you and I confess that to you. And I just ask you, Jesus. To, conf- uh, to forgive me of my sins and raise me from the dead. Make me a new person inside, Lord. I want to be new. And if you will just have that attitude of heart that you put your faith in Christ and say, Jesus, I just want to follow you. I want to do what you say. I want to, I want to be in a relationship with you, a love relationship with you. And you would be saved. You would be saved. And hope would fill your heart and the emptiness would go away. You may be here today and you may be saying, Les, I, I, I know the Lord. I've walked the Lord a long time, but the sense of hopelessness that has been a burden on me has been overwhelming for so long now. Go before the Lord this morning and say, Lord, would you just give me new eyes to see? Lord, new optics, the optics of hope. Lord, we just give that to me today to be able to see that there is more. There's more on the way. There's more waiting and that you are the God who raises the dead. You are the God who does miracles. Ask the Lord to fill your heart with hope today. That today does not, tomorrow doesn't have to be like today or yesterday. And so I'm to be quiet for a couple of moments. Ask go before the Lord today to speak to him about your own heart in your own way. Ask the Lord to give you some hope today. It's so, so key to who we are in this world that we live in right now. So let's be quiet for a moment. I'll pray for us here in just a minute. I just want to come before you today. Just, uh, I just want to lift up that person to you here today, Father, who's living under that burden of hopelessness. And Lord, I just ask that you would come in, come into their heart and their in their life in a powerful way today, Father, just to to lift their head, Lord, and just give them a new vision, Lord, a new new eyes to see. Number one, all that you've done. Number two, all that you're doing. 
but especially number three, Lord, all that you will do for them in Jesus when that day comes. And so, Lord, I just ask that for everybody here today who's struggling with that sense of hopelessness, that, Lord, that today we could take our eyes off of things of this world and fix our eyes on things above in a way we never have before. Lord, find our hope in you and the kingdom to come. And so, Lord, I pray that for that person here today. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.